Welcome to today's discussion brought to you by uh, Class Unity Political Education Committee. Our guest today is Brett Christophers. He is a professor at Uppsala University in Sweden and author of numerous books, including Rontier Capitalism and the New Enclosure. His most recent book is Our Lives and Their Portfolios, uh, Why Asset Managers Own the World, uh, out now uh, published by Verso Books. So Professor Christopher's welcome and uh, thank you for talking with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's lovely to be with you. Um, so um, I'm just going to talk for 10, 15 minutes or so about the book and I guess kind of where it came from, what I was trying to achieve with it, um, just a very kind of high level overview um, and then we can and then we can take it from there. So the the book very much kind of grew um i would say more or less organically out of the rentier capitalism book which it which itself actually grew more or less organically out of the new out of the new enclosure book um you know while i was doing the new enclosure work much of that book was about the the emergence and growth of a new kind of class of land rentiers for want of a better uh, label in the UK um, in recent decades, um, um, as partly as a result of the of the large scale privatization of land in the UK. And when I was working on, on that book and thinking about British contemporary British capitalism more broadly, one thing that struck me was that the basic kind of economic structures and dynamics that that I was describing in relation to land appeared to me to be kind of replicated across other sectors of the economy. So sure, the particular asset that might be involved was different, wasn't necessarily land, but across the across the economy, I kept seeing the same sort of patterns of activities that were about you know, securing proprietarial control over, <clears throat> over assets, um, doing everything that could could be done to render those assets as scarce and as monopolistic uh, monopolistically um, ring fenced as possible and then um, and then making money from controlling rights to the access and use of those particular assets and and so that was what rentier capitalism was about was about this kind of just thinking about this the, the kind of core rentier model and how it was replicated across uh, the economy more generally and not just in relation to land and then while I was working on that book um, and, and looking at rentier dynamics across the British economy as a whole um, in relation to land sure but also finance and infrastructure um, digital platforms natural resources a whole host of other things I, ke I kept coming across um when I was looking at who the particular rentier institutions were um, that were dominant in each in each sector of the economy, I kept coming across a particular type of investment institution, which of course was asset managers, about whom I didn't I didn't know an awful lot at the time. But I kind of while I was working on the rentier capitalism, I kind of I kind of saw that and parked it and thought, right, I want to come back to this um, because I was my interest was, was piqued by the fact that I kept coming across the likes of Blackstone and Mac Macquarie and others 
and it, and and that led me to ask the question well you know why am i seeing a particular type of actor that maybe i hadn't expected to see as being so um prevalent so um um so uh, recurring so much across um across all these different asset types within the british economy so that was where the the book came from um and and as i looked as i began to do more research into that question um i think one of the things i became interested in was the was the fact that um there is now more and more being written about asset management institutions um but one thing that struck me was that at least within the the kind of academic um sphere with which i'm most familiar although i don't think only there i think within broader commentary as well so much of the focus has been upon um the the big um the big um um very 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 large scale um index fund managing firms the likes of blackrock and fidelity and state street and so on and about the fact that they now have this kind of universal ownership of sm relatively small shares of pretty much every corporation um and while i think that that's definitely interesting and important it it it, it struck me that this other this kind of whole other corner of the asset management business where they're not um you know, hugely diversified and owning minority stakes in you know, tens of thousands of companies, but they're taking active ownership, not so much of financial assets, but of real assets, physical assets, on which um, the likes of you and I and, 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 and just ordinary folks more generally, to a significant extent rely when going about their everyday lives. That struck me as something interesting and, and, and original that wasn't being written about. So that was what the, the book focused on. Um, it's a, as it, it's about that phenomenon. It's about um, control of housing and various types of essential infrastructure by asset managers like like Blackstone. And and really, I think I was at the end of the day, I was trying to do a bunch of I think relatively straightforward things with the book. It's not a particular. It's not a, it's not a, an especially theoretical book. I think it's an empiric. It's very much an empirically driven book and really it was about um trying to do a number of different things so one of those was simply to kind of try to get some kind of handle on the scale of the phenomenon and on its geography so you know it was quite um, immediately apparent that asset managers as owners of these types of assets are much more significant in some parts of the world than in others and then actually within particular countries or particular regions they're much more um dominant in some areas than in others. So getting a handle on the scale of the phenomenon was was something that I wanted to do, and which in many ways was kind of the most challenging thing, be precisely because so much of this business takes place behind a kind of curtain or wall of, um, of secrecy, um, very limited disclosure requirements. When asset managers uh, buy and sell these types of assets, using um uh, the types of investment investment funds that they do use which are you know which tend to be domiciled in in tax havens and so just actually figuring out what's going on empirically was quite a significant quite a significant challenge um so first of all getting a handle on the scale of the phenomenon. secondly 
Um, and this was something that became more and more important during the project as I realized that it that it is today an extremely significant phenomenon and 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 that it's a phenomenon that has has grown particularly strongly over the past 15 years or so so especially um since the since the period of the global financial crisis so sure asset managers were buying and buying housing and buying infrastructure before that but the level of investment in those types of assets kind of went into overdrive after the financial crisis so trying to understand you know, what pretty again pretty basic things like what is it about these types of assets that make them attractive investment propositions for asset managers and why growth in that type of investment um, uh, kind of took off after the global financial crisis. And then I suppose that the the, the last, um, but, but, but in many ways, obviously the most important thing I was trying to get to grips with in, in, the, in the work and, and, and in the book that resulted from it, was what are the kind of impl implications of this? And in particular, I was interested in the implications for, um, for I mean, I was interested in the implications for the asset managers themselves as capitalist institutions. I was certainly interested in, in the phenomenon um, from the perspective of, of the state, you know, partly because um, many of these types of assets in, in many countries were assets that historically have have been um, under significant levels of public ownership in many countries. So to one extent or another, asset managers have replaced governments as owners of, and stewards of some of these types of assets, not all of them, but certainly some of them. And then also from the state's perspective, what also became clear is that um, governments play a very, very significant role in um, sort of shaping the terms and conditions under which investment in these types of assets occurs. So um, if I, to, to not put it too crudely, um, doing all sorts of kind of preparatory legal and financial work to make these assets things that asset managers do want to invest in, things that they consider in, in, would consider investable. Governments play a very significant role in that as well. Um, but then pro probably most important of all, I've been, I was interested in trying to think about the implications of this phenomenon for ordinary for ordinary for ordinary people. And I'm and I mean that um in two different two different respects. So first of all, and most importantly, ordinary people as those who rely upon many of these types of assets when going about their daily life. So um um people that, that live in the housing that's owned by asset managers, whether that's you know, multifamily housing or student accommodation or care homes or even even mobile home communities. Um the people that park in the parking systems owned by asset managers that um pay for the electricity that is delivered through the grid owned by asset managers and so on and so forth. So and that and and, and that's the prime um reference i suppose of the subtitle of the book so when i when the book says um uh, um sorry of the title of the book not the subtitle of the book so our lives in their portfolios what i principally mean by that is is literally that that our lives 
are embedded in physical assets that are now significant investments within the uh, port- the investment portfolios of asset, of asset managers. So first of all, as um, ordinary people in their role as users of these types of assets, and then secondly, and 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 and, and I think also very very importantly, ordinary people as um, owners um, to one extent or another of the capital that gets invested in the funds that buy these assets um and 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 what i mean and what i mean there is principally although not exclusively but certainly principally um the retirement savings of of ordinary people which um which increasingly in the last couple of decades have been invested via asset managers and and increasingly have been invested via the, by those asset managers in housing and infrastructure rather than in you know financial assets um other forms of real estate and so on so that's i guess um what i was trying to trying to do with the book and and um i think i think what what i what emerges from the book is is a pretty um is a pretty negative picture of the of the role of of these asset managers um a pretty negative picture of the implications of this phenomenon for ordinary people. So asset managers themselves, one of their kind of main lines of defense against criticism is to say, look, what we're doing by owning and controlling and looking after these types of assets is actually good for ordinary people. It's good for ordinary or ordinary people because we are better more efficient leaner more responsive stewards of things like housing and critical infrastructure than other types of owners and particularly than public sector owners of these types of assets and what we do is also good for ordinary people because if our investment funds that invest in these in these types of assets perform well financially then the ultimate beneficiaries of that are um, ordinary uh, retirement savers whose pensions we are we're ultimately investing. So school teachers, firefighters, nurses, and so on. And and I like to think of the book as being, in significant part, a kind of riposte to that um, to that rhetoric, which at the end of the day is very very misleading um, in in both in both of those key respects. So I think that's all I'll say by way of introduction. I'm guessing I've done somewhere between 10 and 15 minutes. So hopefully that was around about the right um, amount and round about that, the kind of right level of gen- gen- generality. Um, but but needless to say, I'd be very happy to field all and any all and any uh, questions that you might have. And and whether that's specifically about the book, whether it's related to um whether it's related to stuff in in the earlier two books that I that I mentioned, or indeed if it's questions about asset managers that I don't necessarily address in the book, I think you know there's lots of stuff to say about asset managers, some of their private equity um, operations, the role of the big three uh, index fund managers that I don't address in the book, but I um, I'm happy to to discuss those as well. So 
wherever you want, wherever you want to take it, I'll do my best. Sure. Well, thank you. Um, yeah, I guess to begin, I mean, one of the questions we had was, um, how do you think your work relates to traditional classical political economy, including uh, up to Marx's capital? And I think we asked this particularly in regards to the, the concept of the rentier um, and the role that that plays in contemporary capitalism. Because if, if the classical political economists thought that capitalism was removing us from the rent system of the previous feudal eras, it sounds like from your description that we're just returning to a kind of rentier-based economy. And I wonder how you uh, understand that with regards to uh, classical political economy. Yeah, no, that's a that's a a very very uh, good question. I think the way I think the way I would answer that, or at least to start to answer it, would be to say that, um, you know, what I'm what I what I'm not doing in this book, and what I didn't do in the rentier capitalism book is is what I think some people maybe thought I was doing when they when they saw the title of, of the rentier capitalism book. So. Um, so, so what that that book and this book um, does not argue is that um, is that quote unquote rentier capitalism represents a kind of a new form or modality of capitalism that has succeeded another form of capitalism which was not rentierist. So that's not what. The, those either book argues. Um, I think what I the, the better way to put what I what I've been trying to say is that I would argue that capitalism always and everywhere has 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 rentier dimensions throughout history, um, and indeed that I think that all forms of of income generated by uh, capitalist firms has 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 rentier elements, even if that even if in some cases those elements are, are very very minimal. If one understands and defines rent in in the way that I do in the rentier capitalism book, which is which is um, which is as income that's generated by virtue of control of scarce assets of one of one type or another. So I think that. I, you know, I would argue that that rent is inherent inherent to capitalism, but but what I what I tried the case I, try, I guess I tried to make in the rentier capitalism book is that um, is that capitalism since the nineteen around the nineteen seventies and particularly British capitalism since around the nineteen seventies has seen the kind of the rentier dimension the rentier component, whatever terminology or um, figurative um, 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 conceptualization one wants to use, that rentier component has become much more prevalent, much more dominant um, during that period. So rent has kind of come to the fore. Um, but 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 that's not to say that we have kind of a new form of capitalism. For me, at least, it means that you know, capitalism is capitalism is capitalism for for me. Um, but the 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 kind of shades within what we understand as capitalism change over time, and 
and and I think they change in ways that are that are readily explicable. I think in the UK case, for example, it's it's there are lots of different explanations for why rent and rentiers have become so much more um, so much more high profile, so much more significant in in recent decades. So I think, and and the question of how that relates to classical political economy, I guess I would, and this won't surprise you at all. I, I guess I I would align if I'm going to talk about kind of who, who you know the kind of tradition in which I situate myself I, I suppose it it would be with people like Lefebvre and Harvey who have all, who have always made that case that look rent and rentiers didn't disappear with the with the development of 20th and now 20th 21st century capitalism in perhaps the ways that some people might have thought they would and indeed in, in ways that you might imagine they had from some readings of political economy in the 20th century, which actually paid relatively little heed to rent and land and 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 so on. Um, you know, Lefebvre and Harvey have always pushed against that and said, look, if we want to have a a a realistic reading of contemporary capitalism, we have to place the rentier and rent much more centrally to the story than many political economists have have wanted have wanted to do does does that answer does that help answer answer the question um of of where of how i at least how i see this fitting into a kind of that historiography oh yeah very much so um uh daniel or half anyone else would like to jump in with a question yeah, sure. <clears throat> I have a question which kind of follows up on that. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I really enjoyed the book because it is it is very accessible and straightforwardly written, very clear about about these things and uh, very concrete. So I guess my question, I kind of want to back up a little bit and get your view on more some more abstract things like the previous question um, about about how you understand classes and how we should understand uh, class. And especially as it relates to the sort of, you know, the, the key terms that are that you use in this discussion and that are important for rentier capitalism and for asset manager society, um, which are fantastic terms um, you coined, I think, there. Um, so in, 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 in traditional Marxism, we got this narrative that, you know, feudalism was vanishing. All of the anti, all of the old classes were gradually being done away with until there was the proletariat and the bourgeoisie. And it was a sort of dualistic picture. And all that remains is, you know, those who work but don't get the, the proceeds of production and those who don't work but do. Um, and profit is the profit and wages are the only term there. Um, ownership and control are assumed to be the same thing. You know, in in the hand of the capitalist, it's kind of a caricature, but I mean, but that's that's what it was. Similarly, you know, there's a common sense picture that you have, you know, employees and employers. There isn't, and 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 the difference is one of degree in income, and even in mainstream economics, you know, the difference between profit and rent kind of got obliterated, and everything is kind of indistinguishable from returns on investment. Um, there is no more profit of enterprise like Marx talked about in mainstream, yeah. mainstream theory, aggregate aggregate profits or plus value. So, so I'm just wondering, um, you present the material in a very 
you know, low altitude, no nonsense way. But it seems like simmering underneath there is a radically different picture of classes. Namely, um, we have we have owners, controllers, and workers, it seems. And so I was just wondering if you could sort of unpack the conception of class that you that you use specifically, like with an eye to these distinctions, which I think are usually neglected. The difference between difference between profit and rent, um, or a capitalist and a rentier, ownership and control. Um, it seems like there's a lot going on in the background there. Yeah, that's it. I mean, that's a good question. And I that's a question to which unfortunately I do not have a good answer. I think mainly but I mean, for a couple of reasons, I think. So part partly because um I you know, I just I haven't committed the time and effort to thinking and kind of back it, kind of backing out from what I've written what that argument in a sense presupposes about changes in class relations under under contemporary cap capitalism um and and and, I, and part of that is i think is a is a recognition that um that frankly that's not where my own strengths lie um it it's just there's there's people that are better at doing that type of work than i am i think the one place the one place where i have tried to, to kind of at least dabble in those questions. So I wrote a I wrote a piece a couple of years ago about um class and assets and rentier capitalism, which was a um I don't think it was I don't think it was great, but, but what I did try to do was I tried to take um 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 some of Eric Olin Wright's work about um, so his thinking about classes and how we define them in terms of their relations to the to the um, um, to um, um, to productive assets basically, um, and what I tried to do was a was a sort of a similar thing for the relations of workers to quote unquote unproductive assets so how are various types of workers situated vis-a-vis -vis -vis assets like um digital platforms assets like um housing assets like infrastructure assets like oil and gas and what i tried to do was to think in a, re in a relatively straightforward way about about um you know how we can perhaps think systematically about different types of relations to those assets on the on the part of workers. So are they are they workers who are involved in acquiring those assets for companies? Are they workers who are involved in, for example, the legal regulatory work that um, that is to do with shoring up the private property rights that attach to those assets and rendering them income producing or are they the workers that are going out um for example fixing the pipes and maintaining the, the properties quote unquote sw sweating those assets and maintaining those assets and so that's the the, the only real work i've tried to do there was to try to begin to think in a relatively speculative, but also I think somewhat systematic way about the question of class 
in relation to quote unquote unproductive assets rather than rather than productive assets. I guess the other I guess the other thing that I haven't mentioned there, but I think which is kind of obvious, I suppose, which I which I did address in the rentier capitalism book, but which I don't address in in the asset manager book, is to is to to kind of take on take on um um actively the the, the fact that you know a lot of these rent generating assets uh, in certain sectors and housing would be the obvious one but it's not the only one are owned by households rather than by capitalist capitalist corporations and 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 to at least um gesture to the question of what that might mean in class terms and actually i've i've you know it's not it's, it's it's obviously not a marxian notion but i i found piketty's notion of the kind of what he calls petty rentiers um but i thought that was quite useful because i think that what you know what he describes in in his book um and, and what he talks about there is that as i as i'm sure as i'm sure you will know is he talks about um societies haven't gone from you know 100 years ago having a very very small number of of very 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 wealthy rent rentiers to now they're actually being quite uh, in many countries like the uk like france and, and also i suppose like the us although maybe to a lesser extent you have actually a, a relatively large number of of quote unquote petty rentiers who might own one or two investment properties or, or or so on and that for sure that that's another complication another wrinkle in classical understandings of class structures right not not least because you know i think a country like australia would be a great a great example of this very many of those people not all of them of course but very many of those people are not are not people who are wealth or are wealthy in income in kind of employment income terms there and and i think that the the konings and um adkins book um on uh, on the asset economy is quite is quite good on this point you know there are people for whom um income from from property has become their primary source of income and 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 they're not people who are um who are high earners in terms of in terms of waged income and so it does i think that that they that's another way in which the, the the idea of rentier capitalism, I think, does confuse classical class class classical class conceptions. Um, so, as I say, I tried to I tried to my best to sort of at least gesture in that direction in that article and a little bit in the rentier capitalism book. Um, but I don't go there in the new book. And as I say, I think you know as much as as much as anything, um, it it it's it's and this this will sound like an unsatisfactory answer, but it's, this is the truth it's increasingly a recognition of where my relative strengths lie as a, as a scholar right I mean, one thing we all realize as we grow up is we're not we're not all good at everything and one thing i've and and, and in fact sometimes we're not we're not all good at anything but one of the things i've tried to i've tried to do as i've spent more time as a as a writer and as an academic is to say well come on to the extent that i'm good at anything what is it that I'm good at? And I'm, and I've and I, what I've realized is I'm not really a theorist, um, even if I 
perhaps in the past had aspirations to, to being a theorist. But I think what I'm quite good at is taking quite what what can can appear quite complex worlds, particularly around finance, around questions of finance, that are often rendered even more opaque than they actually are, but not not least by other academics. Um, and and of course by practitioners within those those worlds themselves, and 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 tr and as, and trying to render those worlds both um, accessible but also interesting to people who don't know much about those worlds. And I've realised that's something I can actually do reasonably well. So that's that's where that's where I've increasingly focused, and that's what I I guess that's what I was trying to do in this book. Um, but I I mean I I hear where you're coming where you're coming from with the question. Um, but I, I can't do better by way of an answer than, than I than, than that. So maybe we should uh, zero in on uh, one of the concepts you develop in your book around uh, the contemporary economy. You coined the term asset manager society um, in distinction from asset manager capitalism. And I, I yeah. do confess this distinction confused me a little bit. Yeah. I'm wondering if you could uh, maybe elaborate on these terms and particularly what their significance is in terms of recent history, since 2008, yeah. just the past couple of decades. Yeah, I mean, so partly this was, partly this is, is, is um, positioning. So partly this is um, what I guess many writers, and especially many academics do, which is to say, I'm doing something different here from those that use, um, that, that have been discussing asset managers and have been using this idea of asset management capitalism. Look, I've been using a different term and that is a, is a way for me to signal to you that I'm doing different. So partly it's positioning. Um, but um, th th there's certainly more to it than that. So as I'm sure you know, but just, just, um, just so we can be sure that I'm on the same page as you all are, asset manager capitalism is a concept that um on my reading people in, are using to refer to um a a particular type of asset management company first and foremost um and to a, a particular form of influence that those particular asset managers wield today so the discussions that come under that header focus predominantly um on the big um index fund managing asset managers the likes of blackrock um um uh, state street vanguard fidelity and and others and and as i said and as i as i uh, alluded to earlier and to the fact that um um you know, across major publicly listed financial markets in general, but equity markets in particular around the world, but but especially in the US, um, pretty much every listed company has those big three or four asset managers as relatively significant shareholders. Um, and I'm sure you've, you've all seen the data. So the on average, an S&P 500 company somewhere around 20 to 20, 22% of the shares in, in, in those companies on average is owned by BlackRock, Vanguard and State Street between the three of them. And the, the, the gist of that um, 
of that work within that literature has been to ask the question, well, what does it mean for contemporary capitalism that the ownership of capital at large has changed in that way, such that um, entities which 30 or 40 years ago were, were immaterial in terms of their um, holdings of shares of big capital um, have now become the, the, the larger shareholders. So what, what does that mean? And, and I think a lot of that literature is about questions of corporate governance. It's in the kind of tradition of, of you know, Gardner and Means and those, and, and, and back to Hilferding, um, there's, there's vestiges of that there as well. So it's a literature that has been that has been very much focused on ownership of ownership of capital and, and what that means for control of capitalist corporations and the role of those different types of shareholders, what type of influence they have, um, how they wield that influence and, and so on and so forth. Now, the reason I the, the reason I um use a different term is is precisely because I, I think and I and I actually argue this very very briefly in the book my view is that those questions are actually um they're important questions but I think that they're for the most part relatively relatively distant from most people's everyday lives I think for, for most people in the world um I'm not I'm not convinced, or at least I'm yet to be convinced, that it makes a huge amount of difference whether the shares of S and P five hundred companies are whether twenty of them, twenty to twenty to two percent of them, are owned by a whole series of different index funds managed by BlackRock and State Street and Vanguard, rather than being held um, by smaller asset managers or by pension fund trustees directly and insur insurance fund treasurers directly and so on i think those are they're important questions but i think they're relatively distant from most people's everyday lives whereas in my view if if blackstone owns your house and owns the toll road on which you drive to work and sets the terms and conditions and costs under which you have access to those different assets and the con and the physical conditions in which those assets exist I would argue that they are much closer to and much more um, significantly um, engaged with people's everyday lives and therefore social life, hence asset manager society, than, than other types of asset managers are in terms of their ownership in a relatively passive fashion of um of uh of financial assets so that's why i wanted to use a different term and that's why i use the particular term i do to signal that what i'm interested in is a, is a, is i think a, a pretty different corner of the asset management world they're all asset managers but the reality is that you know if you if you look at a company like blackrock which does do a in get you know a very small part of its business is the type of business that i analyze in this book and that's a completely different part of his business than its than its index fund business. They 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 work in completely different ways, um, and I wanted to signal that. And so I didn't want to use the terms um, that others are using. 
But of course, and I could because I, I can see the kind of objections coming up. Of course, what I'm talking about in the book is cap of course it's capitalism and it's a and it's a form of capitalism that is led by asset managers. So yes, there's a you know I, I realize that there are no clean um, distinctions in the way that maybe the terminology suggests there is, but, but nonetheless, I think it's a useful distinction to make. Anyone have a a question? I'm I'm happy to ask, but if uh, Dan or Zach or Hef have something they'd like to say, yeah, I have a <clears throat> I have a question. Okay, go for it. So I, I love the book. Um, I thought the stuff about the climate crisis was really interesting. Kind of these companies moving into that space and the state kind of taking this backseat. Like we'll do risk management, and that's it. Um, I was wondering in during the pandemic, um, there was like a lot of bankruptcies in like shale oil country uh, companies um, in the U.S. Now, do these companies that are building all this green infrastructure and stuff, do they immediately just go into that area too? I mean, I know it's like not an ideological thing for them. It's opportunistic. But do they have like, okay, we have our expertise and our momentum is going in this green direction. Or is is it just like, hey, whatever comes up next, we're going going for that. Like if if there's big opportunities and buying up huge numbers of shale oil companies declaring bankruptcy, are they gonna, you know, be a yeah, it's a good, it's a good, it's a good, it's a very good question. I mean, I don't know the specifics of what happened in that sec in the shale oil sector. Um, so the answer to that question that I'll give you will be will be guided by um an interview i did a couple of years ago with a um an asset management firm a very small one um that focuses on the energy sector and the, the thing that was really really interesting in in that coming out of that conversation so this was a this was an asset manager who that, that historically has run funds that um are focused, or at least work, because I'm talking about the past, that were focused predominantly on on fossil fuels, so oil and gas exploration, particularly in particularly in Texas and in the Gulf in the Gulf of Mexico, and and I and and I I was in, when I was talking to this asset manager, I was um, I was interested in the question of 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 a what types of funds they're trying to raise now, um, which is to say. What are they raise? What were they raising funds for investment in, and and b, what their customers, their their traditional clients, the, the pension funds, the insurance companies, and so on. What types of discussions they're having with the, with those guys in the context of the climate crisis, and the thing that was the thing that was really interesting to me coming out of, the, out of that conversation, and whether you can generalize how far you can generalize from this discussion, I don't know, but what they were saying to me was that they were still desperate to continue to invest in oil and gas. They believed that the future for oil and gas investment, this was maybe two years ago, that the future for oil and gas investment remained very bright, not least because of demand in, in places of the world other than the West, um, China, 
India, Indonesia, uh, other other countries. So they they saw and I would say see the future of oil and gas investment as being very bright. But their clients, the the big pension schemes and so on, were according to the person I spoke I spoke to, increasingly reluctant to give them money to invest. So they were kind of whereas in the past they would have no problem raising you know a five hundred million dollar fund for investing in oil and oil and gas drilling in the Gulf of Mexico. They were struggling with the fact that um, that that their you know, tra traditional reliable customers no no longer wanted to give the money to do that. And so in that particular case, the asset management firm was, in the words you use, just kind of following the money, basically. But they were to a certain extent finding themselves constrained by the um, the desire of their traditional clients to to move away from that from that type of investment. And I think you know we've we've seen all of those all of those sorts of questions play out very vividly with BlackRock over the last year in the U.S. Where on the one hand you you have people on the left saying you know nasty BlackRock still invested in oil and gas companies, whereas you have people on the right saying nasty BlackRock you know being woke and trying to put money into renewables and and. They're kind of between a, a little bit between a rock and a hard place. I mean, I don't mean I'm not expressing sympathy for them, but that's kind of where where they're out. And the, and the Inflation Reduction Act was a was a real boon for them because it enabled someone like Larry Fink to say to say to to say to the people on the you know they could say to he could say to the people on the left, look. We are investing in renewables, and they are they are investing. But they could also say to the people on, on their critics on the right, they could say, "Look, thanks to the Inflation Reduction Act, we're able to do renewables investment, actually earn pretty health pretty healthy returns. So you don't have to worry about us kind of the idea of us sacrificing financial returns on the altar of sustain on the altar of sustainability." Um, so I think those are the those questions are going to remain com completely central going going forward um i mean I th the only other thing i would say is i just i would reiterate um reiterate what one of the main arguments of the book in in this in this context um which is which is that everywhere everywhere you look or at least everywhere i look in the world um at least in the west um however you want to define that I think it's almost universally the case that governments, governments who fully recognise the fully recognise the um, that there is enormous infrastructure investment required in the climate context, whether that's for mitigation or adaptation purposes, that those very same governments, pretty much universally, have decided that government themselves shouldn't shouldn't be carrying out that investment even in countries like the us or the like the us or the uk where fiscal constraints are obviously imagined as much as they are real um um and 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 insofar as they have um persuaded themselves that governments cannot and should not carry out the bulk of that investment themselves and therefore it, it must be the private sector that does that then I think it's almost inevitable that they turn to asset managers because if you look around the world at you know, where 
surplus private capital is held and and where it circulates well it circulates predominantly among asset management firms and and sits as dry powder in in their in their investment funds so it, it, to me it seems completely inevitable that that asset managers are going to play an increasingly central role within the climate crisis in exactly the same way that they, they are in in the housing crisis to the extent that the answer to the housing crisis is is new construction governments around the world and ireland would be a classic case of this but also the uk new zealand australia they're all they all see asset managers as the answer even though asset managers clearly aren't the answer they see asset managers as the answer because they think well that's what that's where all the capital is and as you say governments have, have restrict for the most part have restricted their own role to a to a risk management role i mean this just strikes me the the book in general is, is it paints an incredibly pessimistic future kind of regarding the these these major pressing problems and if the idea of a green transition is sort of one of the the major pillars of left-wing policy these days what does it mean to say that by pushing uh green infrastructure, we're really just handing infrastructure to asset manager society to control for us. I mean, what should the left-wing critique be here? Or Well, I think, I mean, uh, just to respond to, to respond to the first point, I think it is a very, I think it is a very pessimistic picture. Um, but I think it's a, it's a, it's a picture that it, that it's, it's very hard not to end up with when you when you think about when you think about these questions and you think about the the infrastructure investment requirements and you think about where governments are at ideologically in terms of questions of borrowing and and borrowing and spending um what should the, what should the left be doing i mean i think i think that it's i think there are several different parts to that answer um i mean i think that the left should be doing what it what at least significant some parts of the left clearly are doing in the us much more successfully i guess than in the uk which is pushing which is pushing public ownership of, re of renewables um and and you know there have been some albeit relatively modest victories in in not least in new york for example um which 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 have pushed that which have pushed that argument um i mean clearly there is a role for for better regulation of um of private ownership of private ownership of infrastructure um um i don't think regulation is ever the is ever going to be the, the complete answer regulation is never going to kind of successfully stand in for competition in the, in in natural monopoly sectors in the way that ideologues uh, originally suggested it would and regulators get captured and 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 people in the uk where i'm from people have been saying well regulation can do the job for 30 or 40 years now and it plainly hasn't done the job in any of the in any of the privatized utility set utility infrastructure sectors in the uk um i think the left should be saying um insofar as it's our our retirement savings that are that are being invested um via asset managers we don't want necessarily want our 
um, money invested in things like rental housing, where essentially our money is enabling um, pretty, pretty explicit exploitation of tenants by asset managers who are hiking rents. And so I think, I think, I think the left can be much more active about what happens in terms of the investment of the of of worker cap of worker capital, um, for want of a of a better phrase, and I think they should be saying that there are certain there are certain things that probably shouldn't be owned by asset managers, and their in their and their short term investment funds. I think it's a legitimate thing to say these types of funds shouldn't be owning certain certain types of assets. Um, so I think I think that there are um, things they can say and do, but I think the for me the 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 first of those is by far the most important. I, I personally um, find it very hard to see, and I've long found it very hard to see a a positive future for housing and housing access and housing affordability in a place like the UK without a substantially renewed role for 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 public ownership of housing um i you know i I just don't see there are all sorts of other things you can do around the edges but to me that that's that's an absolute necessity and it's so far from being a likelihood at the moment that it is that it, it does look pessimistic i think in that sense uh half go right I, I think you mentioned one way for, I guess, the left to combat um, what's going on here. Uh, one, by regulating what assets, uh, asset management firms can hold. I think that would have to be at the national level, uh, I suppose. Um, and it's an international phenomenon uh, because you say it's, you know, uh, the, these companies have holdings, have funds of assets all over the world. Yep. It also affects people locally. Um, and very often it's local municipal governments entering into contracts with uh, Blackstone and these Correct. other firms. Yep. So what, at what, level of what level of resistance do you think would be most promising or effective or doable if somebody said you know blackstone owns my house and i i want to do something about it what would you recommend to them yeah it's a that's a really difficult question um by which i mean that it's really, really difficult for that individual to to do much of anything about it, um, you know. And and I think part of the part of the reason for for that is is precisely the fact that um, that that it's such a smart business model in in some ways. By which I mean that it's actually not Blackstone that owns it, right? So Black as so Blackstone establishes a fund, which is just a collective investment vehicle. And the fund, most of, almost all the money in the fund is not Blackstone's, maybe 1%, 2%. And so actually, even if it's a Blackstone controlled fund that owns the house in which that particular person lives, 
the house is actually owned in terms of who the beneficiary owners are by well ultimately to to a significant extent the likes of you and i and even the even the person who lives in that property themselves and the asset manager is a a mere intermediary fun functionally and sure it's an intermediary who has established this business in such a way that they are able to extract an outside share of any financial gains that that investment generates but precisely because they are an intermediary they are able to turn around when they're when criticism is mounted of their business and say well look you do anything about this you're just you're just harming the ordinary workers whose money we are putting to work and as i say in the book that's a that's a really misleading discourse because actually those ordinary individuals actually don't see much of the gains at all um but that's a pretty involved argument to make and so i think part of the part of the kind of beauty of the business from the perspective of, of the asset managers themselves is, is that it's is that it's a, a very hard thing to attack because it's not it's not like one actor owning something you can just say because the, it's it's one actor bringing to bear a whole sort of investment constellation in a way that i think has kind of spread its tentacles around our society in a way that you kind of have to chop off all those arms at the same time which i think is very very hard to do um and i think just just i think any sort of loosening of the hold of asset managers over um the various types of assets that they that they ultimately control today would would take a lot of work by a lot of a lot of people and a lot of institutions um you know it's 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 taken quite a long time to come into being and i think it and i think it would take quite a long time for it to be to be undone for all the reasons i've just for all the reasons i've just highlighted not to mention the fact that you know as i'm sure you all have noticed it, it doesn't tend to be the chief executives of goldman sachs and of jp morgan and the like who have the ear of government in in places like the US these days. It, it tends to be the chief executives of Blackstone and BlackRock who have who have the ear of government and who fund um, the leaders of both the campaigns of the leaders of both uh, main parties. So that's just another re thing to remember about the about. Um, the kind of the, the strength of that hold that, that those asset management companies currently have. Can you say a little bit more about the relation between asset manager society and uh, the role of the state and government? And I, I guess particularly like financial policy and things like quantitative easing. I mean, in the United States since 2008, I, I don't know how many trillions of dollars uh, you know, have been issued through quantitative easing. How does how does this enable and support um, the asset market? Yeah, I mean, as as is as is well known, um, the the, um, the the financial um, the financial 
policy, particularly monetary policy, but also fiscal policy, but certainly monetary policy that we saw across the global north, but particularly in the US in the period following the financial crisis, was 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 very beneficial to asset owners of all types insofar as it as lots and lots of research has shown bolstered asset prices and therefore was very very beneficial to the owners to the owners of assets in, asset managers obviously included but not only asset managers but i think and this kind of goes back to something i was mentioning earlier i think the other thing to remember about about monetary policy is that um is that is that monetary policy insofar as it um insofar as as it led to a, a period of unprecedentedly low interest rates for a long long period of time in the decade or so after the financial crisis had a had a huge impact on the relative desirability of different classes of assets for investment institutions including asset managers but not only asset managers and so as as i as i said in the book although i, I did i probably didn't say as much about this as i should have done for, for investors who had historically relied on um on um on um uh, on investing in bonds to secure an annual yield of you know four or five six percent or whatever it was in a very low interest rate environment they could no longer rely upon bonds to deliver that annual income that lots of investors want so lots of investors aren't just interested in capital gains they do want a regular annual income and bonds historically have provided that relatively um relatively predictably and and that was precisely one of one of the main reasons that we saw this surge in investment in things like housing and infrastructure in the period following the financial crisis because for investors who no longer could get that four or five percent predictable yield from bonds, housing and, and infrastructure were able to supply that regular annual income plus the possibility of capital gains. And so that was why a lot of money moved out of fixed income um, financial securities into real assets in, in the period following the financial crisis. So monetary po policy was absolutely central to the the flowering so to speak of asset manager society after the financial crisis and of course to the to the growth in the value of the assets that circulate within asset manager society and 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 I, I don't necessarily need to get into any detail but fiscal policy has always been very very important as well so low taxation of assets low taxation of wealth um is obviously um happy breathing ground for asset managers insofar as they invest invest in these types of assets so mon monetary policy is, is absolutely central and the treasury in the in the us is as far as i understand it kind of brim full with recruits from the asset manager sector it's just it's another it's another one of those kind of revolving doors things right which is that people move in, in both directions they move from asset management firms uh, to, to, into government policy um, uh, positions, and, and then they move back in the other direction as well. Um, so there's a, there's a, there's a very there's a very close link there. 
So one of the topics that we've been studying in our group recently is imperialism. And so we are reading Hilferding, Lenin, Luxembourg, the, you know, the classical theories. And in yep. your book, you do mention Hilferding and Lenin yep. at one point and compare uh, what they were describing was the export of industrial capacity over the globe. Now we seemingly have a rush to privatize infrastructure um, all over the globe. So yep. what what is the character of just the international quality of this? And and uh, yeah. maybe a more dramatic question, do you see this as a source of future geopolitical conflict the way that the imperialism kind of led to the world wars? That's a, maybe a, a larger topic, but just in general, how do you understand this in the context of the traditional theory of imperialism and uh, international control of economy? Yeah, well, I think, I mean, I think uh, my sort of relatively crude sort of simplistic take on this is that is that it is a sort of um, continuation of um, a form of financial imperialism in, in, I think, much the same way that you could describe um, the relationship between um private sector creditors in the global north and sovereign and sovereign debtors obviously in the in the global south today and and and, and many theorists describe that particular financial constellation in that precise way i mean i think the thing just in in, in empirical terms the thing that's been particularly interesting i think um about the period since the financial crisis is that one of the main things you've seen during that period is asset managers who are overwhelmingly based in the global north and who overwhelmingly put to work capital that is raised in the global north although the growing role of sovereign wealth funds from places like the middle east as contributors of capital to the funds managed by western asset managers it adds a certain important wrinkle to that story um but historically, certainly prior to the financial crisis, it, it was relatively uncommon for asset managers to invest in housing and infrastructure outside the global north. It, it happened, you know, investment in hydropower facilities in, in South America, for example, Brookfield from Canada is a, has, has, has long been a big player there. But it it really took off after the after the financial crisis, and I think it it, it took off for a for a bunch of different reasons. Um, I mean, one of the reasons is that this has become a much more competitive industry, um, and some of perhaps what might have been kind of um, easy wins, low hanging fruit in the low whatever metaphor you want to to use that were historically available in the global north, perhaps no longer are. And, and and asset managers, have, as they as all capitalists do, once their core markets become more competitive, they look to to tap other other geographical markets as well. So they've 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 looked further afield. They've begun to explore um, investing in things like farmland and toll roads and plus absolutely renewable power on a huge scale outside of the global north over the last decade or so. Um, and then I think the and then I think the other the other thing um, is that they've seen um, an assortment of 
of parties um, do more to remove some of the risks or perceived risks that historically put them off that type of investment. So it might have been the case, for example, that um, 15, 20 years ago, an asset management firm in the Global North would have run a mile at the idea of putting money into solar solar power facilities in Senegal or in uh, or in Namibia or somewhere else in Africa or, or in Brazil, for example. But the combination of you know, generous development finance finance institutions, um, driven principally out of the global north and philanthropic institutions, and the willingness of those actors to um, to shoulder a lion's share the lion's share of any financial risks associated with that investment has has been hugely significant in increasing the willingness of asset managers to put to put money into the global south and and if you be, if you believe the kind of the, the reports by the likes of mckinsey on the global infrastructure gap um and if you, so if you believe what they say which is that you know an overwhelmingly significant majority of, of future infrastructure investment has to occur across the global south and if you com if you combine that need for investment with the very real fiscal constraints under which the majority of governments in those parts of the world operate, then it then it absolutely doesn't take long to arrive at the uh, at the fact that that asset managers are going to play an enormously significant role in future infrastructure investment in 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 that part of the world, and we'll be siphoning off the gains. And delivering those gains to the extent that they are realised to their well to themselves and to their clients, predominantly located in the global north, and and it strikes me that to understand that as a form of financial imperialism is is makes sense. I I, I would say, will that lead to geopolitical conflict? Well. I don't I don't think it's any more or less likely to lead to geopolitical conflict than the fact that um you know a huge amount of the expenditure of sovereign um of sovereigns across the global south and parts of the global south today are going to pay interest on sovereign debt that is held by private sector actors in the global north and that doesn't seem to be generating significant geopolitical conflict today for for reasons that i'm i'm no ex, uh, no expert on um and so um I, I don't think um the types of flows that i've been talking about here are any more or less likely to elicit conflict than they are but the the, the seeds of conflict would certainly seem to be there in my view Uh, Zach, Daniel, Hef, either of you guys have a question? Yeah, I, I have a question about uh, sort of similar, but perhaps not international. Um, a, a good concrete example of some of the conflicts that can arise from this were in your discussion of Chicago. Um, and I found that really interesting. I'd always heard about, you know, the parking meters, but I didn't know all the details. So it was very interesting to discover. And um, 
you know, at one point, I think you use a term, and I'm not sure if it's in the Chicago discussion, but you say there's a structural incongruity. You know, sometimes the the requirements of these companies for a sort of state guaranteed riskless stream of revenue um, is obstructing the ability of local governments to do what needs to be done just even to make things work sometimes. And anyone yeah. who's driven in Chicago on Lakeshore at five o'clock knows um, that it's, it's, it's chaos and it doesn't have to be that way, but apparently it's going to be yeah. that way for about 80 more years. So yeah. <laughs> I was wondering, can you, can you, um, I mean, this, this is a case where it's, it's, it seems less speculative and maybe easier to relate to for people. I mean, could you say something about the way that conflict could be baked into these arrangements um, there? Or in, in yeah, that? I mean, I mean, I think, I mean, one question that I often get asked is, uh, is, is, you know, what are the, what are the limits to the expansion of asset management society? And, and I, and I, and, and and those those limits can theoretically come in different come in different forms. So one is a drying up of a supply of capital to be invested by um, to be in, invested by their funds. That's for, for sure one limit. But you you would imagine another limit is it, it, it entails the willingness of local governments, who you would imagine would be. Um, swayed to one extent or another by the by the concerns of local citizens to enter into these types of agreements given the kind of horror stories that previous episodes have elicited you know chicago and parking is one um the one of the other examples in the book from new jersey the bayonne and water supply uh and and the kind of the, the horrific um outcomes that occurred there would be another so I, th I think that um i think that local governments um you would you would imagine that local governments are um are would be would be in many cases be cautious about entering into these types of agree into these types of agreements um which can lead them to being hamstrung in the way that uh, the city of Chicago has been hamstrung by that particular deal. However, um, I guess the I guess the other side of the equation is to say um, it's it's very I think it would be, I think it is very easy to and I've seen this in the UK in a, in a in the municipal context as well, although not specifically in relation to asset managers. I think it's quite easy for uh, altogether too easy for, for for local government managers to say, well, that was just a function of poor negotiating on the part of on the part of Chicago and and and, and kind of we know better and we won't allow ourselves to be taken to the cleaners in quite the same way that Chicago allowed Morgan Stanley to take it to the cleaners in quite the same way as Bayonne in New Jersey allowed KKR to kind of pull the wool over its eyes so I think that's one thing and then and then the other thing is that again and 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 I I know more about the UK case certainly than the than the US case here, but 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 local governments again are operating under under in many cases under very very severe fiscal constraints, which limits their capacity to pursue other alternatives when it comes to major infrastructure investment. 
and and beggars can't be choosers right and so if 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 this is what's on the table and if you need the and if you need the investment um um then then maybe asset managers is kind of what you end up with but i think that that but, but i think there are i think that, that that is a potential significant source of limits the fact that um a lot of this stuff is very very visible right um but at the same time you know the world's a weird place in 2018 californians had the opportunity to vote to repeal costa hawkins right which limits the ability of municipalities to regulate rents in residential rents in california california is the most has the proportionally the most rent burden residents in the in the country you know it's just a litany of disaster when it comes to and 60 percent of voters voted against the proposition to repeal it which to me is completely mind-boggling it's it's baffling um um and and i say that because that's a case where the kind of the the problems are very visible and they're they're experienced on a day-to-day -day basis by people and yet people still tend to vote against their own best interests even where those problems are very very visible which which again comes back to lobbying power financial power you know blackstone was the biggest contributor of capital to the campaign to the campaign against that proposition and blackstone was one of the biggest landlords in in the state right i mean it's you, you it's none of it's surprising so with regards to the question of you know possible limits to asset manager society i wonder if we can talk a little bit about just the socialization of risk and uh the role that that plays um yep. maybe i mean I, one of the details i was struck by is your when you're describing um that you know assets are bought so that they can be sold five years later at um, at a higher price and that that in yep. itself is one of the higher sources of revenue even more than rents themselves and you know when you think about this generalized across all aspects of society whether it's real estate or infrastructure is like eventually just no one's going to have an incentive to fix anything and things like society itself is going to break down on a material level. Um, so I, I just wonder like what examples of, of uh, just real dysfunction can, can arise from this and how, how that is kind of offset onto um, to contemporary society. Yeah. I mean, I think the best example um the best example I think you can have of something like, I mean, it is a bizarre thing, right? It, and and often when they're selling these things after four or five years, another kind of another asset manager comes along and takes it off their hands and holds it for another three or four years or whatever it might be. And part of me, when I was working on this, it, it almost felt like the, the kind of, I was, I was kind of uh, um, witness to almost a game where they're like kind of, passing a passing a kind of explosive to each other it just and they're kind of hoping that it won't blow up while during the four or five years of their tenure and that they won't be the one that kind of left holding the holding the bag when things blow up but sometimes it does blow up right and one of the I think the best example of that that I discuss in the book was the was a care home chain in the UK which which was passed between I think it went through about five different uh, ownership uh, by five different asset management firms 
within the space of about 14 or 15 years, all of which kind of played the same game of underinvestment, loading it up with debt. Um, and I th and it feels, and it always felt to me when I wrote, read those, is they kind of assume that it's not going to be left them that's left. But, but in that case, the problems became so bad that one of them was left holding the bag and the bag and arguably Thames Water in the UK today, although the major shareholders today are pension funds rather than asset managers, it's a similar story in the UK water sector of just ridiculously bad practices, huge, um, huge uh, leverage, debt leveraging of the investments, extraction through dividends and shareholder loans and so on, you know, all the kind of tricks that I discuss in the book. And Thames Water has kind of recently blown up in the face of the investors, um, albeit, as I said, in this case, uh, pension funds rather than asset managers. So I do think there's this, that because the business model is buy and sell, and because the business model is essentially sell to another asset manager, it, it, it does feel like um, that someone gets left holding the bag at, at the end of the day. So the only real question is, is how long they that game can carry on. Um, I mean, I think that asset managers are very good at um, getting concessions from governments in terms of getting expenditure co-funded and so on. You know they're very very good at saying, look, you need to, you need, and this is where your question started. Look, we need you to, to to carry out co-investment here. We need public money to help invest in these assets. Otherwise, we're going to withdraw our capital. And they're very they're very very good at scaring governments with the idea that if governments don't play ball then capital will will flee on mass and actually my, you know I, i've probably got a somewhat different view from certain other people on on the, who i who who write a lot about this on the left and I, because i think that i think that in some cases um Capital would flee on mass if the government wasn't forthcoming in de-risking investment. And I think renewables is the is the best example of that. You know, if you look at around the world, if you look at places that have countries that have substantially removed the types of support mechanisms that historically have supported investment in renew in new renewables facilities, investment has has collapsed when they when they've done that. And and that's a pretty real sign that 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 de-risking is actually necessary in certain contexts. However, I think there are almost certainly other contexts where governments have been hoodwinked to one extent or another into believing that if they don't carry out that de-risking, the <clears throat> the asset managers and other private sector investors won't invest. Um, but but I but I, but I do think that as you say, I think that there are there's a certain level of dysfunctionality that we are seeing that that um you would expect to lead to resistance sooner rather than later but as as I, as I, and, and I'm constantly amazed like by this governments governments but also many people within society seem oddly willing to kind of accept 
that dysfunctionality. And I think and I think one of the problems here, and this kind of goes, I guess, I guess this goes back to the class question, right? Which is that the people who whose lives are most embedded in asset management society, and the, the, the people whose out whose financial outgoings go disproportionately to funding the perpetuation of asset management society are poor people. So on the housing side, we're talking about rental housing, and most wealthy people do not rent, right? So their their lives are not affected by the housing question at all. And then on the on the infrastructure side, you know, the share of the share of household outgoings that go to paying energy bills, transport bills, and public transport bills, and so on, is 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 vastly higher, obviously, for poor households rather than it is for rich households. So it's the rich are relatively less affected by um by these sorts of dysfunctionalities and and it tends to be rich people's voices who are heard by governments right for all sorts of different reasons not least because they tend to vote they tend to vote more um than than poor people do so i think that 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 sort of um inequality in of impact of asset manager society um, and and therefore, um, an and inequality of dis, of kind of the experience of dysfunctionality um, is a is a significant part of the explanation for why it persists in the way it does. I probably need to go in a couple more minutes if that's all right. I'm just I had a quick. I saw the time now, and I if I need, is it okay if I shoot off in a few minutes? Yeah, yeah. We were. I think we we're just coming to an end. Um, uh... Daniel, did you have something you wanted to add? It looks like you do, Daniel. Oh, yeah. I do, I do. Um, if you have time, I was just you know definitely wondering about this this term you use, de-risking, and another yeah. in another place you use uh, you know the expression that there's a sort of guaranteed revenue for these companies by the state, and um, yep, these are just very striking to me because you know uh, in sort of supposing we're in a, the neoliberal era um we always hear about free markets and uh the benefits of competition and so forth but you know the impression i got from your book is that um asset manager society and neoliberalism i mean asset manager society might just be a more sort of concrete description of neoliberalism and yeah. and, and it's not free market it's monopoly especially the way yeah. that that all these assets were amassed under these companies after the global financial crisis when you know, foreclosed homes were bought up really cheaply. And so I'm thinking about things following on the yep. previous comment, like gentrification, rising rents, um, asset price inflation, the way that, you know, it sounds like they want to be landlords, but they really just want to cut costs to show the high revenue on paper so that they can sell these again. And the consequence is that- 100%. The consequence is that, you know, you have a state-backed monopoly with for investments with no risk and guaranteed revenue- yep. And and um, the consequences that normal people have to pay more, pay more rent. So, I mean, that's just a wild thought. I mean, no, that's absolutely the I think that's absolutely the reality. And 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 I guess so. I wrote I wrote a thing in the New Statesman recently where I kind of um, had a kind of threw a hissy fit about this sort of uh, idea that's increasingly abroad that we're kind of seeing the end of neoliberalism with the return of industrial policy and everything. And and the reason I kind of threw that hissy fit was that I've never really understood the argument, which tends to be the dominant argument, 
that neoliberalism, which if we take neoliberalism to be the kind of political, kind of which I do to be the kind of political economy of the last forty years in the global north, is about markets and it's about competition. I mean, rhetorically it is, but the, but the the reality is that it never is is that it never has been. If you look at you know, wherever you look, um, um wherever you look markets tend to be um markets are a very strange phenomenon in reality they tend to be olig oligopolistic or even monopolistic and and prices tend to actually be have degrees of government control um much more widely than people often imagine to be the case so i've and I, and you know i made this argument very strongly in the new enclosure and i and i and i continue to make the argument i guess more implicitly the, the, these days than explicitly but for me at least the, the the kind of the signature feature of neoliberalism is not is not markets or competition certainly not competition but but private ownership and 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 the and of every, of everything that can be of everything that can be owned and that generates and that generates revenue and and i think that's why you know what's to me is most noticeable about about you know Bidenomics and and kind of industrial policy and and the, the you know the return of industrial policy and the, the alleged death of neoliberalism is the the one thing that isn't changing is that is the idea that that everything that is going to be invested in is going to be private is going to be privately owned and, and there's no role there's no significant role for public ownership in it in any of this. So the idea that it constitutes a significant change to me is just misplaced. It, it, it's, a, it's a change for me at the margins and the, and the fundamental part of it, um, um, it, which is the question of ownership, is, is not changing at all. And in fact, you know, arguably, it's, it, it represents a doubling down on, on doubling down on private ownership. Um, so I think you're I think you're absolutely right. And 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 certainly when I was carrying out the research for the book, the 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 prevalence of those kind of guarantees and the and the prevalence of the removal of risk from the shoulders of quote unquote risk capitalists is actually quite is actually quite quite remarkable. Um and as I say, the only the only sort of thing I would add to that is that I I and and this this is something that I'm working on at the moment. Um, is that I do think that in particular areas like renewables, governments have if 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 governments have taken the view that the private sector should be leading the energy transition, which they and they have taken that view more or less everywhere, then they do need to provide those kind of guarantees and subsidies because otherwise the private sector won't invest because it's not profitable enough. And so, and that's and that's a real problem. If you if you are expecting the private sector to do something which is not particularly profitable, absent those subsidies, then you have no choice but to carry on giving those subsidies. Because the only the only alternative is public ownership, and that seems to be out of the question right now. All right, Brett, thank you for talking to us. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Um, it's been a pleasure for me. Thanks for having me. I, I, new book, uh, Our I Lives and Their Portfolios, available now. Um, and uh, yeah, we hope to talk to you more in the future. Thank you. Yeah, I would like that very much. So thanks for having me and uh, enjoy the rest of your day.
Same to you. See you. Bye, everybody. Bye.